Thank you, worship team. Thank you for coming this morning. Thank you for joining us online. Find a Bible and uh, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And uh, if you're here in the room and would like a, a Bible, we have some. Nate's got them right back there. Just raise your hand and he'll get you one. Page 463 if you're using one of our Bibles in here. A God-centered view of money. We think about money daily. I dare you to find a day you don't. We are either earning it or worrying about it, spending it, making decisions all the time. You, you are making a decision if you decide to take your lunch rather than spending 10 bucks to go get something. You are making a decision about money when you click place order on that thing on Amazon. When you think about the car repair you need and debate whether you should maybe replace it. When you think about investing or changing your investments. When you think about your job, should you get a different job? Should you get an additional job so you could have more money? Or can you even find a job? All these things are money thoughts. If God wanted to stimulate us spiritually to consider our priorities on a daily basis, if he, if he wanted to confront whether we are a self-centered or God-centered person, what could he use? What could he use better than something as tangible as money? As we look into our passage this week as well as next week, much of chapter 5 and chapter 6 is about money. We are not told how much money is right, but is our, we're confronted with whether our thinking about money is right. We're confronted with whether we are self-centered or God-centered. And the first little two-verse illustration, kind of interestingly, is about politics and money. Verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied... Do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. That's what's happening, he's saying, politically. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. The first issue is financial selfishness, injustice, happens all the time in political systems. In fact, there's an oppression of the poor. He, doesn't, he, he says it's not right, but that's what is going to happen in human finances politically. People are taking advantage of others, and so the political systems of the world really serve as an illustration that we are inherently self-centered when it comes to money. One official is hired by a high, eyed by a higher one. and So in other words, it's power, and the power ultimately and, and so frequently is about who controls the flow of money. It's not just an American problem or a European problem or a third world problem or even a totalitarian problem. It's just a human problem. It's a sin problem. This is the nature. Solomon, who's writing this towards the end of his life, understood it happened in his kingdom. Well, it probably happened in all the Persian 
kings that he had known around him as well. This past week, of course, as Americans, I think we've all been saddened by political violence. Uh, this past year, of course, there's been political violence and division and anger and politics is about control and control is so often about money. Don't be surprised, Solomon says. It prevails in every country. It prevails in every era of time. In totalitarian regimes, of course, the guy at the top can control and have anything he wants. Other forms of government might look a little different, applying the same principle of Solomon. Just to be honest, even in our American system where we can vote, we, we most often vote for that which we perceive would be best for ourselves financially. Solomon just makes the observation, don't be surprised at self-centeredness in government. Verse 9 is a little tricky to understand, and so some of our Bible translations read a little bit differently. But I believe the point is a bit of a contrast where Solomon is saying, but this is how it should be. This is a better system. I think he's probably speaking of that which he was trying to accomplish, maybe at his, at his best. Verse 9 the increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. It's a little bit hard to understand that. Maybe the King James Version actually uh, makes it a little more clear. Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. So in other words, as a, as a ruler looks at the resources of a country, the land, in an agricultural society, of course, was the key issue. It's really meant to benefit everyone, and so good kings and good governments should, should, should seek to benefit all, and because then, then, then even the king will benefit. And that would be the goal, and America wrestles with that, wrestles hard. We need to pray for our country. So there's two brief verses about money and politics, which I think are essentially serving as an illustration of natural self centeredness. Two verses compared to what now follows is almost two full chapters about the politics and the individual. Because what Solomon is, is seeking to impact, what God's word is always trying to impact, is our own heart. So if you can see, if you will, in the news, this is how, this is how the world struggles with political issues of money. He says, now use that as a mirror and take a look at yourself and say, am I self-centered? about money. Because really verses 10 through 17 now says that the person who, the term is loves money, the person who loves money is self-centered and then is ultimately very, very unhappy. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. The theme in the book of Ecclesiastes has been how this is empty and meaningless, and this is vain, and this is... So money becomes one more of those things if we are lovers of money, which is another way of saying self-centered about it. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, 
whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. So the, the kind of the, the title verse of this section is verse 10, where the issue is make sure we understand who Solomon is speaking to and how he's putting, putting that mirror in front of our heart. He says the issue is the person who loves money. There's three financial terms in verse 10. We can, I think, it'll help us to understand. First of all is the word money, and this Hebrew word really is talking about really like the, the gold and silver, the, the money you have in your account or your possession available for trade or buying goods, money. The second term, the second line is wealth. Wealth is a term that is mostly used in the Old Testament of stuff, material things that you would buy. So you got the money, loving money, and then loving the stuff that it buys. And then the third financial term is the person who loves wealth, the stuff, never is satisfied with his income. In other words, you need more income to buy more stuff. So that's the issue that he raises. But Solomon, I'll probably say this several times today, Solomon is not condemning money or having money. He is rather confronting whether we love money. Uh, you may recognize that phrase, the love of money, from the New Testament because the Apostle Paul was writing to Pastor Timothy of Ephesus and telling him how he should teach the people about money. And so we'll refer actually to 1 Timothy 6 several times today. But uh, here's what he says the problem is. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. As you think through that passage, there is a prevailing theme that tells us what the problem is, and the problem is the love of money. Those who want to get rich, it's the love of money, and it's being eager for money. In other words, money is what is driving us. If you look at the passage carefully, you realize Paul is not saying that money is evil or that having money is evil. Some people, actually many people have misquoted uh, that verse to say that money is the root of all evil. Does it say the money is, that money is the root of all evil? It doesn't say that at all. It says what? The love of money is the root of all evil. That is the problem, not having it. So is, is, is money driving us? Because what money is, is actually a very important spiritual test. It's a test of our heart because it is something we do all the time, use all the time. And, and so we, we, as we think about jobs, as we think about a move, we think about a family decision, we are always needing to prioritize to know, is it money that is driving this decision? Is my heart in turmoil because of money? Because the love of money is an equal opportunity spiritual disease. And it affects those who have very little all the way to those who have very much because it's a heart issue. It's a spiritual test. So the mark of someone who loves money as a spiritual problem is what it says, they're never satisfied. He who loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. There'll never be 
enough. Kind of gets us squirming because who doesn't want more money? I mean, I mean who wouldn't say, well, no, no I, I need to achieve. I need to work hard, right? Isn't that a good value? I need to use my skills, pay off the mortgage, get some breathing room, grow my business. Aren't those good things? And in fact, they are. And it's not a contradiction. Paul, uh, uh, Solomon himself, writing in Proverbs, would, would, would write about and advocate for those very things to work hard. And in fact, usually there is a financial benefit. And in fact, so often God blesses hard work. So what is this saying this is saying are you content with now regardless of what the future may be in fact what if there is a dramatic reversal and you fell on really hard times would you be content with shelter food and clothing so the real test is are we content uh, again paul would address this several times, and he, was, he could speak to it so well. There's a little bit of us that thinks, well, Solomon, he had so much money. How can he talk about this? Though I think he does write with a very wise, older perspective, having come through the spiritual turmoil in his own heart. But the Apostle Paul wrote clearly about contentment. I have learned, the secret, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. He's been both places. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That, that particular verse is so easily claimed by so many for so much. Uh, I can do all things. I can win the ball game because God gave me strength. What it's really about is about I can be content because Christ can give me contentment no matter what my circumstances are, specifically in this context, financial circumstances. First Timothy 6, again now writing to Pastor Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Does our heart say amen to that? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, just food and clothing? I'm not so sure that... So what if there were a time that for whatever reason we really were reduced to the minimum? Do we, do we see that we could be content in Christ with him just taking care of our essential needs? It's a spiritual test, isn't it? It's a tug-of-war. How do we know if we are guilty of the love of money and to what degree and are we discontent let me suggest a, suggest a couple of key indicators signs of discontent never satisfied which is basically the same thing as never satisfied are we marked by envy always looking at what everybody else has resentment as in not only do they have it but it's not fair because I deserve it more than they do. I work harder than they do. Complaining. That's when we look at what God has supplied and we belittle it. Complaining. Arguing. Always like, 
I need more from you. It might be a marital argument. It might be a, something on the shop floor where you work. I don't know. But how do I make it better for me? And so it brings us into conflict. One more might be this struggle to give. Because if I'm not content with what I have, how am I ever going to let go of any of it? Or anything sizable? Because it's like mine. We can pretty well figure out what this is about just watching two-year-olds. <laughs> so, signs of discontent. This Money becomes a spiritual thing because it's a continual spiritual test. Does, does 10% more solve these issues? How about 30% more? How about if you doubled your wealth and your income overnight, would this go away? Momentarily, but not really because it's a spiritual condition. And that's why at the end of verse 10, then he says, this too is meaningless. This, this, this pursuit will leave you empty. He then goes in verses 11 and 12, not really saying again that wealth is bad. But he says, there are some downsides to wealth, so let's just go down that road, and if you did get wealthier, if you did get the 10 or the 30 or the doubling of your, your assets... Would that, why would it be empty? Why, why could it be a problem? As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? There will be an emptiness as goods increase in a couple of ways. First of all, the word consume that I have here is literally the word eat. As, as your goods increase, the, the people who eat, eat up your goods increases. I think he meant that quite literally because he was... I think uh, maybe very, he was, of course, very well of his own, aware of his own staff. First, uh, First Kings, uh, in the uh, early days of Solomon's uh, vast wealth, describes the grocery list for the staff. First Kings 4, 22 to 24, just, I'm just going to list the meat grocery list daily for the people who worked in his court. 30 head of cattle, 100 head of sheep and goats, three kinds of game animals, and so much poultry you can't, can't you didn't have put a number on it. Because if you have a lot of people working for you, they're going to eat up some of your wealth. And then, the other way he looks at it is, if, what benefit, so let's say you have a lot, what benefit is it to the owner except to feast his eyes on him? Use another eating word. You can't eat your stuff. All you can do is look at it. He seems to have an awareness of our shelves and closets and um, garages. This summer, uh, we, we were, had been increasingly aware that our little shed or barn in the backyard was filled with meaningless stuff. So this summer, we finally got around to clearing out. I think we got 50, 60% of it out. And so we, we, we like it a lot better. But I even had the thought, if it burned down, what would I replace? Probably not even that 40%. Now, Scott's motorcycle is parked there right now, so that would have to be replaced. But, but other than that, how much meaningless stuff? Why do we have such trouble buying stuff for gifts at Christmas a few weeks ago? Because our mind's going through, what do they need? What do they need? So that's a downside, and that's part of the meaninglessness of it, verse 11. The other is, verse 12, if we had more wealth, it brings more anxiety. The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. 
The term uh, laborer is applied in the Old Testament to one of two kinds of workers. One is the slave is called a laborer, but so are the skilled uh, trades are called laborers. And what the term laborer seems to have in common is that a laborer is someone who works with their hands as opposed to owners who hire people to work with their hands. And so he says, frankly, the laborers, there's, there's like a little bit of envy, as Solomon writes this. They sleep well. Sure, some are making more money than others. They, some are having more steak, and others are mostly with vegetables. But they, they're working with their hands. And in that economy, the, the division was pretty, pretty drastic. They, didn't, they lived day to day. They didn't accumulate. They just provided for their family. But Solomon says they slept well. In contrast, he says, sometimes the wealthy stay up worrying a lot more because as we sometimes say, that what you own, owns you. There's more vehicles, more can break down, there's more insurance. If you have a lot of property and barns, the storm comes through, you're worried about more things. Uh, the more you have in the retirement fund, the more market volatility bothers you, and it just brings this anxiety. So it's kind of ironic to hear this man who is probably the wealthiest man ever to walk the earth. If you go back and look at how much gold he had. Probably the wealthiest man, and he's writing about the downsides of wealth without condemning wealth. Just letting us know this is, this is what actually happens in our hearts. However, as we come to verses 13 through 17, it does seem to be a true warning that if you have gone down this road and, and the love of money controls you, Here's a couple of, of real problems. This, this is where it will come to bite you. Warning number one in verses 13 and, uh, and 14 is that if you love it, you hoard it, and if you lose it, you're in real pain. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Uh, this may describe two situations, or you can say and, so it might be just one uh, situation he's describing. But it's someone who is experiencing a grievous evil. So now we know it's a bad thing. Uh, the evil is that it's a misery, and there's an implication that the person has to share some of this blame. There's something about his approach to money that has created this problem. So they were, the, they were the love of money person of verse 10. They, they focus on keeping it, growing it, hoarding it. And then in this situation, they lost it. And so the love of money gives you the potential of real hurt to the hurt or harm of the owner. It could be emotional, it could be spiritual, it could be personal or family in some way, but it was lost doesn't say for sure that this was a, an illegal or a, 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 a unethical use of money, but it could have been, I guess. That always makes things even worse. But something, the economy crashed, whatever, they lost it. Now the son has nothing, and so the son did nothing wrong, but it actually affected him. And so it makes us begin to think about money generationally and realize that our perspective of money will impact the next generation. So we aren't just making 
decisions, a self-centered view of money says, this is all about what I think. But he says, you realize if, it, if you're self-centered, that self-centeredness tends to filter down. So we have to be thinking about our legacy financially as well. It's not just how much, though in this case the son didn't have anything because of dad's situation. But we are leaving a legacy of contentment or not. We're leaving a legacy of generosity or not. We're leaving a legacy of wisdom or not. The upside is that if we grasp where this passage is going and we begin to adopt a God-centered view of money, we will impact families that come from our family for generations. We have equipped them to take and see money as a serious spiritual responsibility. So the first warning is that if you love it and hoard it, you might lose it and create all kinds of hurt. Second warning is that the person who loves money is distressed and angry, especially as death nears, because you can't take it with you. Verse 15. Naked, I, a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. This is a, uh, grievous evil really is a term that means regrettable misery. In other words, it's something you, you, you share some responsibility or blame. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain? Since he toils for the wind, all his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is where that road of loving money leads. Because he can take nothing with him. and Everybody knows it. We can ignore it, but everybody knows that's really how it is. And so he says that that turns out to be a very grievous evil because you get to the place where you realize, I was toiling for something I cannot keep. There's an upside if we get this. There's an upside. If we begin to understand and embrace that we cannot keep it, we realize we actually don't own it. And if we realize we don't own it, we have to ask ourselves, who does? Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So if we begin to grasp that because of the nature of money and material things is indeed temporary, there's now and there's when I let it all go, and I begin to embrace that God actually owns it all, it changes everything for how I view financial or material things. I am a steward of something that God has entrusted to me. Now it's, it's not my money. There's a, such a freedom to know that it's not my money. It's not my stuff. And the proof is I leave it all behind. So I evidently didn't own it. It's like tools you use at your job. You don't take them home. It's for working over there. If it breaks, they have to fix it because it's a tool 
There's a freedom when it's, it's God's stuff. He can give more. He can give less. Do you see how this begins to sow the seeds of contentment, this spiritual phenomenal truth that says, I'm satisfied. So we begin, if it's God owns it, we begin to think, what should I do with my money or stuff that pleases him? Since it's his money, I'm now a manager. I just, I just changed roles. I gave it all away thinking I owned it and I didn't. But now he owns it. So how, do you, how, do you want, how much do you want me to earn where I have freedom? How much do you want me to spend? How much should I, should I keep and save? And how much should I invest? And how much should I, should I give? And these all now become questions that we ask of the manager. I mean, the owner, because we're the manager. And now, now it, just, it just changes our whole perspective to have a God-centered view, because really, our money is simply a reflection of everything else about our life. Everything is from him. We are accountable someday for how we use our time, how we use our abilities, how we use our spiritual gifts, and part of that is simply how we use our financial resources. We're stewards of everything. Because when this life is over, all those things are over. And so if we're going to spend all of eternity pleasing God, that's what's so wonderful about heaven, we can get started now with that mindset of, I live to please him. If we take on a, self, a God-centered view of stewardship instead of a self-centered view of consumers. But if we don't, Verse 17 warns us. All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. That's what happens to the lover of money. Darkness is a term, basically, we would probably call it depression. The second term is frustration. That's where more the, the outward expressions of, of anger will characterize us. Third term is affliction. It's really a, talking about physical disease, illness. The final one, anger, is talking more about an inner anger. We might call it bitterness. So as we age, he's describing, all his days, there's this, 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 this terminology of days coming from Solomon, writing, I believe, at the, towards the end of his life, is like there is a finite number of days, and they're winding down. The person who loves money begins to get more desperate and more desperate and more desperate because we're running out of time. And there's this... When we love money, and at the earlier stages of adult living, let's say, there is this, this hope. We're trying to climb this hill of getting things better and, and accomplishing this and achieving this. It all looks so bright, and so we're like up the, up the hill, but there is here a point of getting over the hill where we realize, oh, but now I'm looking at this calendar differently. Here I was thinking of wh how long it'll be till I can achieve. Now my calendar is looking a lot differently because now it's how many days do I have left? So that... If we are successful, it changes that picture too because gradually this person realizes our success is on a collision course with death. And so 
darkness, frustration, affliction, anger steps in. It's depressing. What's the solution? Is there a solution? I got an email this week from someone facing their own mortality who has a completely different view of life. It was so refreshing. There was joy. There was peace. There was a reflection on uh, the closeness of God. There was anticipation. And my eyes got kind of teary, thinking that's it. That's it. That's someone who is living differently. I'm glad the passage doesn't end here. Verses 18, 19, and 20. After showing us that the person who loves money is self-centered and unhappy, we find that enjoyment comes only from living God-centered. It almost seems like as you read these verses, somebody else must have written these than, than the previous passage. No, he's just contrasting two ways of living. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction. After just saying how the person in verse 10 is never satisfied. It's truly a good thing to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him. For this is his lot. And the word lot, just maybe substitute the word assignment. This is his assignment. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot assignment and be happy in his work, this is a gift from God. And he seldom reflects on the days of his life that I'm running out of days. He doesn't even hardly think about that because God gives him or keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. He says there is a remarkable reversal because when we live self-centered we end up depressed angry and bitter when we live god-centered that's when we can enjoy life living as steward it's good it's proper it's a blessing to eat drink and find satisfaction <clears throat> in fact it's almost ironic he says find satisfaction in his toil or toilsome labor it's a work that describes labor or work as painful it is, ever since Genesis and sin. Work is, work is hard. If your work isn't hard, you're not working. There's not something difficult about it. Is it really work? And yet, he says, there's satisfaction in work, and that's where it, you have this sense of accomplishment and satisfaction. Why? Because the life, the few days of his life, God has given him. This is his assignment. And so when we see our work as an assignment from God, that changes our work. This is the third time I described early in the study of Ecclesiastes. There's like cycles where he talks about vanity and the emptiness of life. And then he like comes up for air and says something just like this. He did it at the end of chapter 2. He did it at the end of chapter 3. And now here at the end of chapter 5. He says these same kinds of words. It's good, it's proper, it's a blessing. You can find satisfaction. He's contrasting the emptiness of life without God and then how God fills an empty life when he is our focus. And that's exactly what's in this passage. So at the end of verse, uh, notice mention of God three times in these last three verses. Verse, end of verse eight, 18. The, the days of his life God has given him. Verse 19 
God gives man wealth and possessions. End of verse 19. Uh, the enjoyment is a gift from God. It's, it, it changes everything. Every one of these three passages, end of two, three, and four, ends, starts with the issue of our work, stewardship of work. Work is what we do regularly. And whether you're in a stage of life where you are working for money, whether you are able to do volunteer work, or whether you are conscripted, thinking of brave moms who don't have a choice but take care of the kids, right? Whatever you see your responsibility to be from God, we can find satisfaction in that because God assigned it to us. The uh, familiar bumper sticker, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Think about the theology of that bumper sticker. It's entirely self-centered. Because it perceives work as that which we do to get out of debt for the things that we have bought, whether we could afford them or not. The best possible outcome of that theology is that I can pay off the mortgage and the house and the car and all that. I can pay that all off, and then either A, I'm young enough to now buy or borrow to get more things, or I'm old enough and have... Uh, accumulated enough to retire and go uh, sit on a beach someplace and watch myself creep towards death. That's where it goes. It's a God-centered view that every step of the way I am asking him about earning, about spending, about saving, about giving, because I want every day to please the one who has entrusted me with my life, my days, my abilities, my work, and thus my money. And so I can be pleasing him. I owe, I, I mean, I, I go, I go, and please God every day that I go to work. We have to, first of all, correct our theology of work. Then, what, is, what happens to our theology of money? Verse 19, moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possession, wait, who gives him? When God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his assignment and be happy in his work, this is a gift from God. And he seldom reflects in the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. God's assigned you to do things, beneficial things. And almost every job is benefiting God's world. Unless you're producing cocaine or pornography or something, your work is, is meaningful because God wants it done. It's serving somebody. You're providing a service. Our work becomes God-centered. And then what happens is our view of money is God-centered. First Timothy Some of you read that title and said, I don't think that's about me, right? This is, I know somebody like that. But what's it saying? Um, by the world standards, this entire room and most people watching are wealthy. Uh, compared to another country, compared to another time, and many times compared to another county, we are wealthy. So this is us. Command those who are rich in this present world 
not to be arrogant. Let's stop there. Why weren't you born in a slum in Bangladesh? God chose you to be born, and you have the circumstances of life that you have. So we cannot be arrogant if we have more. Or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. This year has borne out the uncertainty of wealth when we didn't expect that. People have lost jobs, people have lost businesses, income has been reduced for some. It's uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Again, I think, as Paul was writing this to Timothy, he must have just been reading Ecclesiastes in his devotions that morning. There's so many parallels. So if God provides us with everything for our enjoyment, what is our responsibility? Command them to, be, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In other words, we are not to feel guilty that we have what we have, but to receive it as a gift from God, do the spiritual work of growing contentment, but then to take seriously this responsibility to be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share. I think those three statements, if you are looking there at verse 19, there's, a, there's an umbrella statement, do good. How do you do good? Number one, be rich in good deeds. That's not a financial one. The second one is financial, be generous and willing to share. So this is the question I think we have to ask ourselves. Has 2020 stimulated you to be more others-centered? To be rich in good deeds? Because difficult times can either cause us to be more self-centered or more others-centered. So as stewards of life has this past year caused us to be more others-centered. Because many of the things, while in fact we understand we're, we're more isolated, do not uh, require us to always be together. We, we love being together. But there are phone calls, there are texts. Are we, have we encouraged people? Have we, have we supported? So many people are needing encouragement. So that's the first question. That is being rich in good deeds. The second is financial. Have you shared and given more of whatever resources you have, whether they're money itself or not? Have you shared more this past year? What will next year look like? Will, will we be better stewards? Because, back to verse 19, God give, when God gives wealth and possessions and able to enjoy them, you know when you enjoy your material things? when you know you're pleasing God with them and you know he's using you and he's using your stuff. And now we experience true enjoyment. Your house is not evil. Your car, nice car, is not evil. My motorcycle, it's a nice motorcycle. I hope it's not evil. I don't, I, and I... I don't really mean that as a joke. I'm dead serious. God's gifted you 
And he, and he gives you the ability to enjoy if you are a steward that sees yourself as using and everything for his glory and his purposes. And your, your, your design is to please him with everything. And then he seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Because we anticipate a whole eternity if we put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, we know we're going to be in heaven, and heaven will be so enjoyable because we're pleasing him all the time. And so we'd simply adopt that lifestyle now and say, God, in, in, this, in this crooked and perverse generation, in this difficult world, and all the sin and all the effects and all the conflict, I just want to please you. And I use everything you gave. You gave, you gave me everything. And I just want to kind of logically think through what this looks like. God gave me my life, and thus each day. That's, that's stewardship. That the only reason I'm here is because God gave me life. God gave me work to do. He gave me something to do, someone to support, someone to encourage, someone to pray for. Whatever your work, paid or not, he gave me things to do, whatever it is. God gave me my wealth, however much it is. He gave me these material financial resources. Everything is from him. Then if I view my life as a stewardship, then he gives me the ability to enjoy my life, my work, my wealth. Or to put it another way, this is what stewardship of life consists of. Using what God entrusted to me and enjoying it because God is using me. This is what he's doing. He gave me this measure of health or wealth or ability or, or, or place of service. And now God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. There's a final piece to this. This is the passage we read before about God's plan for wealthier Christians. The final verse says this, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The first part points us clearly to the fact this is a life God rewards. There's a treasure in the coming age. We get that. But there's something else he says. This is really living. This is taking hold of life the way God meant it to be. And so in spite of all that goes on around us, all the crises that God walks us through, personally, we take each day each dollar, each opportunity as a gift from God and seek to please him. And he'll say, well done. Heavenly Father, we look forward to how someday what is so unclear and difficult will become clear, how that which is a struggle of our heart will be shown for what it is, and you will say, well done, where we have sought to please you. And so today we look to correct our heart, look in the mirror for whether we see our resources as meant for our pleasure or for yours to live self-centered or focused clearly on you. We entrust that to you in this coming year in Jesus' name. Amen.